Okay, good morning. Good morning. Um, this will be my last Sunday with you for a few weeks, so um, I want to try to get through this first message to the first of the seven churches here in Revelation chapter 2, and then I'll just pick it back up when I get back from this preaching tour on the college campuses. So, um, Last week, we got through chapter 1, which was John's vision of the glorified Christ, presenting Christ in a light much different than what we are accustomed to thinking based upon the record of the Gospels when Jesus walked this earth in His humanity. But after His resurrection from the dead, He was glorified in the same Jesus who was crucified by the Jews and the Romans hath been made Lord in Christ. And it's that Lord in Christ that Peter and Paul and John and the apostles preached. And it's that Lord in Christ that we've been commissioned to preach to the ends of the earth. Not a weak Jesus, not a Catholic Jesus hanging on a cross in weakness, but a glorified Christ bearing the marks in His feet and hands and the mark in His side for a testimony for all eternity to His sacrifice, but ruling and reigning at the right hand of God the Father, expecting until His enemies be made His footstool. That is who we preach. And that's who John saw in chapter 1. And I ended where John was given a commission to write the things which he had seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. And friends, this is the outline of the book. You know, Jesus Christ gives us an outline of the book, the things which He had seen, the vision of Christ, the things which are, the present church age, Revelation 2 and 3, and the things which shall be after the church age. And so we know the book, based on Jesus' outline, is largely futuristic and didn't get fulfilled in some obscure way in history. Okay? So we're going to begin today. Uh, John saw Jesus walking in the midst of seven cam candlesticks or lampstands, and in his hand were seven stars, which were the angels, or as I mentioned, the pastors to the seven churches. That word angel just means messenger. And uh, in that sense, the pastor of a local body or the elders of a local body are the angel to the flock. They're the minister uh, uh, to the flock. Um, and so these pastors were in the, in, the, in the hand of Christ and He walked amongst the seven golden lampstands. And these things were interpreted there for John at the end of chapter 1 as he was told to write. So John wrote the things which he saw, which was the glorified Christ in the midst of the churches. And then we begin with chapter 2 where John begins to write down the things which are. And so chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation are the messages to the seven churches. Okay? Now, I want to remind you again that these seven churches were not the only churches that were in the province of Asia in that day. We know of at least three others that were mentioned in Scripture in Asia. Colossae, Hierapolis, and Troas. And of these seven churches here in Revelation, only three of them are elsewhere mentioned in the New Testament. Ephesus, Thyatira, Lydia, seller of purple is mentioned to have been from Thyatira. And then... Laodicea is mentioned because the epistle to the Colossians was told to be delivered uh, um, to the Laodiceans and read to the Laodiceans as well. So, of these seven churches, four of them aren't even mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. 
They weren't the only churches in Asia. So you have to ask ourselves, why these seven churches? And the answer is that these seven, seven being the number of completeness, must be representative churches. They were actual churches in John's day, but they must be representative of other things. And I think the Scripture as we begin to read, and as we look back in history, a perspective that the early church fathers did not have, a perspective that the reformers did not have, as we look back in history, we can see that there was a prophetic element to these churches. So, as we begin to look at these messages, I want you to realize that each of these churches has a local aspect. In other words, each of these were literal churches in John's day. He, uh, Jesus was addressing a literal church body. There was a church at Ephesus, as we'll read a, or talk about a little bit later, that Jesus was addressing. These messages are also what I would call admonitory. In other words, they are given to all churches at all times. These messages together, all churches is all time, at all times, as a test to discern the spiritual state of a local body in the sight of God. In other words, we can look at these messages as a local body and see them and view them as a test to discern where we are at spiritually in the eyes of Jesus Christ. So in that sense, they apply at all times to all churches. Thirdly, these messages are personal. Not only to be heeded and applied to the church body, but to the individual Christian as well. And the proof of this is that in each message there's an invocation. He that hath an ear, let him hear. Let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So, the believer is admonished to hear what's being said. So we should read these messages and seek to understand and apply them in our own life. And then fourthly, I believe these messages are prophetic. In other words, John was told to write down the things which are. And I talked a little bit about Daniel's 70-week prophecy as relates to the Jews a couple of weeks ago, but we are living in what is the church age. The church is a special program in God's plan and history for the ages whereby He would draw out a peculiar people, a royal priesthood, both Jew and Gentiles. Call them out from all nations unto Himself. A special program. And the church age began at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down and dwelt the believer. And the church age will end when Christ raptures His church out of this earth and then turns again to, be, to judge Israel, to pour His wrath out on the world, and then, then to begin to fulfill those literal messianic prophecies whereby the promises made to Abraham and the fathers will be literally filled in a literal king, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So, taking that into consideration, we can look at these messages and see a literal unfolding of seven stages of the spiritual history of the church from the apostolic times all the way down until the end of the church age. And it's remarkable to actually look at this and then look back at history from our perspective here in Laodicea, the times of lukewarmness, and see how the progression of the church is, remark is remarkable in terms of mirroring 
the order and the message is given to, given to these seven churches, beginning with Ephesus and ending with Laodicea. As you look at the book of Revelation, you get to chapters 4 and chapters 5, and the scene is in heaven. It's very interesting that Jesus, uh, there's a voice that John hears. He says he sees a door open in heaven, and a voice like a trumpet says, Come up here. And then John was immediately translated to heaven. It's a, it's a picture of the rapture. And then what John sees is the throne room and the, 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 the beast and the elders gathered around the throne giving praise and then the Lamb comes out who is Jesus Christ and He's the only one worthy to open the scroll. That scroll, that seven sealed scroll is a title deed to the earth. What we'll see there is that elder, as elders begin to sing praise that the church is actually in heaven in, in, in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Those elders who are representatives of the church, Jews and Gentiles together, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive honor, glory, and praise because You have redeemed us, King James, not them, these modern versions. You have redeemed us out of every kindred, tongue, t tribe, and nation. And have purchased us. So we see the church actually in heaven. And then after that, the church is nowhere mentioned again in the Scriptures in Revelation, until the saints come back with Christ at Armageddon. So the church is noticeably absent from the book of Revelation when the judgments of God begin to pour out during that tribulation period. So these messages to the churches must be a prophetic foreview. When we look at church history and then we consider that the church is absent during the judgments, there must be a prophetic foreview here. And as I said, history shows some very clear correspondence. Now some people would say, well how can you say that? The early church fathers, or the reformers, they didn't preach that this was prophetic church history. Well, history has to be written and developed so a comparison can be made. Today, as we're living in the midst of the apostasy and lukewarmness spoken about to the church of Laodicea, we could actually look back and see a complete development. If these things had been clearly revealed to the church in the early days or in John's day, the incentive for the believer to watch and be ready for Christ to come at any time could have been absent. But we're looking back over the entire corridor of church history and we can see a precise development that mirrors exactly what happens in Revelation 2 and 3 leading up to the end of the church age. So every one of these messages is not only local, it's admonitory to all churches at all times because it shows us the different types of churches that exist at all times. It's personal. They're personal messages, something we should apply to our hearts. And they're prophetic as they lay out the, sp the stages of spiritual history in the church age. Now, I find it interesting that in the liturgy of the Church of England, um, the Anglican Church, that Revelation, Revelation 2 and 3 is completely omitted. Okay, Every other chapter of every other book of the New Testament is set forth for public reading in the Church of England's liturgy except for Revelation 2 and 3. Why? Okay, most Christians are familiar with Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount but completely unaware of the existence of these teachings straight from Christ given to the church. Now we often run into these kids on the college campus. They know the Sermon on the Mount. 
and they want to pre- you know they want to come against us for preaching and they want to say judge not that you be not judged and all this stuff from the sermon on the mount but would have no clue whatsoever about these direct admonitions given to the church in Revelation 2 and 3. I, I say it very plainly and, and believe it wholeheartedly that the evils, apostasy, and shortcomings of today's church are the direct outgrowth and neglect of the solemn instruction given to the church in these two chapters. If you want to know why the church is what it is today, it's because these messages have been ignored by the church body. They're given to the church. Why don't we read them and believe them and understand them? Paul's epistles are written to the church, but everybody can't stand Paul. Everybody's got a problem with what Paul wrote. If I've heard it said once, I've heard it a million times. Well, why don't you, why don't you live by the red letters? You know, that's not Jesus, that was Paul. It's funny how the church despises the instruction that was given directly to it and then takes instruction that was given to the Jew and that is a picture of the millennial kingdom and tries to twist it and apply it to the church. That's what happens when you don't take the Scripture in context, read it and understand it literally. So the first church here in Revelation 2 is the church at Ephesus. Okay? Ephesus is, gonna, is what I would call the backslidden church. And so I'm just going to read the first six verses of chapter 2 today. And Jesus is speaking here. And John is to write these things down and to ensure that these messages are delivered to the churches. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These sayings saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand and walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, And how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, Ephesus. Ephesus is a church that's elsewhere mentioned in the New Testament. In fact, one of Paul's epistles was directed to the church of Ephesus, the book of Ephesians. It was a major metropolis in Asia Minor, a major city. It was the home of one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, which was the temple of the goddess Diana. And Paul is the one who founded or established this church when he was on his, one of his missionary journeys. In fact, in Acts 20, we learn that Paul ministered in Ephesus for three entire years. If you go back and read Acts chapter 19, you can see the effectiveness of Paul's ministry recorded in Ephesus. In fact, it says in chapter 19 of Acts verse 10 that Ephesus apparently was Paul's base for preaching the gospel throughout all of the region of Asia. So these other churches that are addressed here 
were born of the work that began in Asia in the city of Ephesus. In fact, uh, later in, in the chapter, there's an incident where uh, Demetrius, one of the, the uh, idol makers, riles up the crowd because their craft is suffering because of the preaching of the gospel. People aren't buying the idols anymore. And there's a huge uproar in the city of Ephesus. Now, there's a lot of people when they see that we go and preach in the open air and everything goes crazy and the students basically riot and go nuts. They want to blame the preacher and act like we've done something wrong. Well, when Paul went and preached places, there were entire cities that went nuts at the preaching of the gospel. And Ephesus was one of those. There was trouble stirred up and uh, the people began to shout, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! Great is Diana of the Ephesians! And, and Paul wanted to go in there and dress the crowd, but they, they wouldn't let him do it. And... and uh, um, so you had this, this massive uproar, and out of all of that, the church was born and established. It is interesting in Acts chapter 19, this is a little bit of a side note, that the town clerk comes in to appease the crowd and says, look, what, what's the problem here? These men have come into our city, but it says they're neither robbers of churches nor blasphemers of the goddess Diana. So you people need to calm down because the Romans are going to wonder what in the world we're all, all angry about. We're not even going to be able to give an answer to this. And so in that little statement where the town clerk says these men are not robbers of churches or blasphemers of the goddess Diana, it says something about Paul and his ministry when he went in and preached to the pagans. He didn't go in there and sit around talking about their religion and blasting everything out of the water. He went in there and preached Jesus Christ. So much so that even the pagan town clerk could say they're not blaspheming our goddess. And I think there's some wisdom in that. Paul, when he preached at Athens a little bit earlier in his missionary journeys, he went up to Mars Hill and he preached on that sermon about the unknown God and talked about the superstitions and stuff of the people. And then he went to Corinth next. And if you read the first epistle to the Corinthians, Paul says in chapter 2 that when I came unto you, I came in trembling and fear. Something went down in Athens that had him trembling and afraid. And then he goes on to say, so I determined when I came unto you, I was going to preach nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So something happened in Paul between Athens and Corinth where he determined, you know what? I'm going to preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified and let that be the offense. And so I think there's wisdom in that when we go to these college campuses or when we preach in the streets. I mean, I could go to a college campus and there could be a bunch of sodomites getting together to, to, for gay pride or something and I can go in there and start blasting homosexuality. I could stir up a crowd. I'd get everybody angry. But it's not about homosexuality. It's about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And without that, the homosexual has no hope. And so I think there's some wisdom there and it's tied to Ephesus where Paul preached hard. It caused a riot in the city, but it could still be said of him by one of the pagans looking on that he's not even blasphemed our goddess. What are you people mad about? And we would learn to apply that overseas in Nepal and in other places where we've labored. You know, it, it, it's not about going in there to, to, to tear apart Hinduism and Buddhism. It's to go in there and to use God's general revelation to draw people's attention to the Creator, to our conscience, the curse of sin, and then to preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified and let that be what offends people. In fact, I've gotten to the point, and I was talking to Brother Ken about this yesterday, when I go out anymore, unless I'm at a stoplight or a traffic island where cars are passing by, I don't even like to use signs anymore. I'm just not into that. 
because it makes me look like a protester. I'm not a protester, I'm a preacher. So Brother Ken made me this cross, and I just take the cross with me anymore. I want it to be the cross that, 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 that causes offense when we go out. I don't want it to be some sign that makes a smart aleck remark about homosexuals or you know, a smart aleck remark about this or that. And signs aren't bad necessarily if they're scriptural, but I want to be a preacher and I want to preach Jesus and Him crucified. And if that causes offense, so be it. So I know it's a little bit off topic, but it's related there to the church at Ephesus. After Paul's work was completed there, it is, it is a tradition says that Timothy uh, led the work in Ephesus for many years. And I think tradition says that Timothy one day noticed a pagan festival there in Ephesus and got so upset about it that he went out as a street preacher and preached to the people uh, 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 parading by about turning from idolatry and turning to the true and living God and the people in the crowd got angry and beat him to death. And that's the, uh, what tradition says happened to Timothy. But after A.D. 70, when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans, John uh, migrated up to Ephesus and it's believed that he kind of oversaw the churches in Asia kind of as a spiritual mentor or as the last remaining apostle. What's the definition of an apostle? Anybody know? One who had seen the Lord, seen specifically the resurrected Jesus Christ. And so Jesus' apostles lived and walked with Him. They saw Him on this earth. They saw His miracles. They heard His teachings. And then they saw Him uh, as witnesses risen from the dead. And we know that from Acts chapter 1 when they decided to try to replace Judas and they wanted to take, they wanted to select someone who had accompanied with us all the days beginning with the baptism of John until the day Jesus was resurrected. And they chose Matthias to replace Judas. And later, Paul himself saw the resurrected Lord Jesus. He didn't have a just, just a trance or a dream. He saw Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus and, that, and he woke up from his hatred of the Christian gospel. And, it, and his conversion really is a type of the national conversion that's one day going to come to Israel as God pours His judgment out in the tribulation and they're brought to their, their bitter end. Something's going to happen where the entire nation living at that time is going to wake up and realize that Christ is their Messiah and believe on Him. Just like Israel woke up numerous times in the book of Judges, and then God sent them a Savior to deliver them. Um, the message here in Revelation 2 is addressed to Ephesus in the days of John, probably about 30 years after Paul uh, uh, wrote his book uh, of, of Ephesians, which was written from prison, believe it or not, around A.D. 64. About 30 years later, this message is given to the church at Ephesus started by Paul, the missionary and the church planter. And this would have been the second generation of Christians there. It wouldn't have been you know, necessarily just the folks that heard Paul's preaching and believed. It would have been the second generation. And it's interesting that based upon the, the uh, indictment that Jesus Christ gives here, we can look back and see Paul... In Acts chapter 20, when he met the Ephesian elders on his way back to Jerusalem, he anticipated that a backsliding would come to this church. He anticipated it. Uh, Matthew, could you read Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 31? Paul anticipated the backsliding that they are now being confronted with. 
Acts 20, 29 through 31. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous, grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Amen. Paul told them to watch and to remember. Now we come 30 years later, second generation, this church has begun to slide, just like Paul warned them, and they're again told to remember. Okay? So there's a little background on the church at Ephesus. Now, as we begin uh, here in verse 1, we're going to see two things, or, or uh, a, a background issue I want to deal with, but two things that we see in every one of these messages. And so I want to draw your attention to that. But first, remember that Jesus, in that vision that John saw, is standing and walking in the midst of these seven lampstands, right? And these lampstands represent the churches. Now, each lampstand has its own light, its own testimony. It bears the glory of Christ in its own lampstand. Friends, in, the pic in that picture, we have a very important truth. The church body, as ordained and established by Jesus Christ, is an autonomous, independent body that answers to no one but Jesus Christ. So we can take this Catholic hierarchical garbage where churches answer to prelates and prelates answer to cardinals and cardinals and popes. We can throw that stuff in the garbage can. This church, as an autonomous church body, just like the lampstand that represents Ephesus, the one for Smyrna and Pergamos and Thyatira, it had its own testimony. And its head was Christ. And its ministers were to answer to Him. They, not one uh, pastor, but they, the pastors of all these churches, were in His right hand. There wasn't one lampstand, one central church like Rome claims to be. There were seven individual churches that each bore the glory and the image of Christ. And independent with the authority to ordain, to baptize, to preach the gospel, and to do all these things embedded in the Great Commission. And so friends, the local church is autonomous. You know, these hierarchical systems where these local bodies answer to higher up bodies and pastors are traded and transferred all over the place, and, 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 and uh, that's not New Testament. And it defies the vision of the churches we see right here. So remember, these are autonomous church bodies and that's why that's one of the reasons why I'm a Baptist. Because the Baptist church understands that the New Testament church is autonomous and owes its allegiance and authority to no one but Jesus Christ. And that being said, each church body is commissioned by Christ. It has the authority to carry out the Great Commission. It doesn't need the approval of a cooperative program. It doesn't need the approval of some church council. We've been given this authority as a body by Christ, and you see that very clearly in this image of Christ amidst seven lampstands, each with their own testimony. Now, that's, I, I just was noticing that studying uh, this morning, and uh, uh, would have been better to share that last week, but I wanted to throw that in there. But look here. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Notice who 
these messages are addressed to. To the angel, or as I said last week, the messenger, which most likely was the pastor or the leader of these churches. So this message was addressed to the pastor and he was given the responsibility of communicating this truth to his church. It's a serious thing, my friend, to lead the local body of Christians as a pastor or an elder, whether that's a singular uh, in a church body or a plurality as we have here. It's a serious thing. In fact, James tells us in James chapter 3, Brothers, please be not many masters. In other words, don't seek to be a leader or teacher because we will receive the greater condemnation. So it's a serious thing. As I said last week, Jesus Christ had those pastors in His right hand. If they were true, no one could touch them. They were in Christ's hands. If they were false and unfaithful, no one could deliver them from Christ's hand. It's a serious thing. And this message was entrusted to the pastor of, pastors. Of, these messages were entrusted to the pastors of these churches to deliver to the church bodies. And it's just a reminder that we as leaders in the body of Christ are entrusted with preaching God's Word as it is given to us. Not as we feel it should be, or not as we think it is better communicated, or better translated, or the original Greek says this, or a more modern translation says this. But as God has delivered it to us, that is what we're responsible to communicate. And we're in the hand of Christ as those teachers and leaders, and He sees and knows everything we say and do. And so it's interesting uh, uh, to be reminded of that as we see who these messages are addressed to. And then secondly, who's the one addressing? Well, it's Jesus Christ. And as you go through each of these messages, you'll see that an image refracts us or reflects us back to chapter 1. A certain aspect of the vision or the description of Christ contained in chapter 1 is brought up in each of these messages. Okay? And the aspect emphasized to the particular church has a bearing on the particular church addressed. So, what is uh, described here? These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand and walks in the midst of the seven golden sandalsticks. This aspect of Christ was to be emphasized to the church at Ephesus. What does it tell us about Him? Well, it talks about His hands and His feet. He's walking amongst the churches. He has the pastors of those churches in His right hand. In other words, He knows. He knows everything. He doesn't just know the outward works. He knows the heart. And Ephesus needed to be reminded of this as we begin to read and see what their problem was. Christ knows and sees the heart. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7 Samuel the prophet was told to go and anoint David, the least of all of Jesse's sons, as the king of Israel. And it said there in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, don't look on his outward appearance. Don't fret that he's the youngest or the smallest. God doesn't look like, doesn't, isn't a man. He doesn't judge like a man. He doesn't look on the outward appearance. He looks on the heart. And guess what? God not only sees the heart of the individual, he sees the spirit and the heart of the church body. And we're going to see that here. A church cannot fool the Lord like it can fool the outside world. There's plenty of churches right here in Catawba County that look fancy on the outside. 
I know of a big one right down here on Highway 16. But God knows the motives behind the ministry. He knows the heart. And He's not fooled. This whole community might be fooled by big programs and fancy pageants and Christian schools and, and, and pieces of property and big buildings, but God's not fooled. In fact, you can be involved in all these works as we'll see the church at Ephesus was and your motive may be wrong and God and Jesus Christ know this. Now, as we begin to see what Jesus has to say, there are, to this message, in this message to Ephesus, we have two commendations. So Christ has some positive things to say. And we have an indictment. And these commendations, are, they sandwich an indictment or a criticism or an exhortation from Jesus Christ. Okay? Verses 2 and 3. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou cannot bear them which are evil and hast, thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars and hast borne and hast patience and for my name's sake hast labored and has not fainted. So Christ has something very positive to say here to the church. This would be what I would call a commendation of, uh, I'm just going to write that this way to abbreviate it, commendation of doctrine and diligence. Jesus Christ praises the church at Ephesus for their sound doctrine and for their diligence in ministry. So we read these Scriptures, what we see in the church is discernment. Discernment to know right from wrong, good from evil, truth from false doctrine. We also see church discipline here. We see a testing of doctrine. I'm reminded of the Bereans. When Paul came into Berea after he left Thessalonica, he preached the same message there. And it said that the Jews at Berea were more noble than they that were at Thessalonica because they heard the Word of God with readiness of mind and then searched the Scriptures to see if the things Paul had preached were true. And so we see these qualities here in the church of Ephesus. It says that they abhorred that which was morally bad and theologically in error while serving the Lord patiently. Friends, Ephesus had served the Lord well. Look at this commendation here. Verse 3 says, Thou hast borne and hast patience. In the original language, that's in the present tense which implies a, a continuous attitude of patience. A continuous waiting on the Lord. They had labored, not for themselves, but for Christ's namesake. They had not grown weary. They had not fainted. We'd be quick to look at the fact that they lost their first love. That's what we always zero in on. But my friends, there are very few churches today in America that will qualify for this commendation from Jesus Christ. Very few. Very few who care about truth over popularity. Very few that are willing to test those that say they are TV preachers or say they are great leaders in the church to see if what they're speaking is true. In fact, the church in America, in a lot of ways, is the opposite of this. And so, the Ephesian church was given quite a commendation by Christ here. Few churches today would qualify. Are we discerning? 
Are we willing to try those that say they are apostles or say they are teachers from God to test them with the Scriptures and then when we find that they fall short, are we willing to speak out against it? Or would we rather just keep quiet? Are we willing to labor and continue to labor, not being weary and well-doing, waiting with patience on the return of Christ? Are we doing these things? If we're not, then we deserve to be rebuked. And in those qualities, the church at Ephesus was a model. Let's not forget this. But, as we get over to verse 4 and 5, Christ does have something to say. In fact, He says, Nevertheless, in verse 4, I have somewhat, or I, have, I do have something against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. And so what we see following this commendation of doctrine and diligence is an indictment for lack of devotion. Okay? My friends, please understand, doctrine does not equal devotion. Programs do not equal passion. The church in America needs to hear that again. Your programs do not mean passion for Jesus Christ and His Gospel. In Ephesus, the outward works were there. But Christ, who walked amidst the seven golden candlesticks and held the stars in His right hand, saw the motive. Because thou hast left thy first love. That can mean a variety of things, but nevertheless, it's stinging. It's a stinging rebuke. Um, Brother Ken, would you look up Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16? I want you to hear what Paul has to say about the Ephesian church when he was writing from prison some 30 years earlier. Ephesians 1, 15 and 16. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. Amen. Paul talked about their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and their love for all saints. Quite the opposite of what we're hearing here. You see, the Ephesian church, when it was founded, was like that apostolic church in Jerusalem. They had a love for Christ. They had a love for the Word of God. This love was manifested in the fellowship of the saints in prayer. You saw that when those Ephesian people came out to meet Paul on his way to Jerusalem and they prayed and wept over him. They had a love for Christ appearing. These things characterized the early churches in the book of Acts all the way up toward the middle end of the first century. So what was the problem? Well, maybe we can understand what leaving your first love means. A little, maybe we can understand it a little bit better by considering the threefold nature of man's spiritual poverty. Man is spiritually poor, and this spiritually, this spiritual poverty 
can take on three forms. Threefold nature of man's spiritual poverty. The first form would be what I call a defect of the intellect. A defect of the intellect. In other words, this is a lack of faith in God or in the promises of His Word. Just don't believe it. Defect of the mind, of the intellect. Now this results ultimately in a falling short of salvation or someone might truly be saved but they don't seem to ever be able to get to the point where they can depend on God the promises of His Word and the blessings that come with it. They live in a state of continual worry and apprehension about everything. This is a defect of the will. I mean, of the, not of the will, of the intellect. It's just simple refusal to believe God and take Him at His Word. The second type of spiritual poverty, poverty and it, it is called a defect of the will. This would be a failure... To yield completely to the Lord. You know, we may believe God and believe His promises, but we stop short of yielding completely to Him. Seeing His sovereign hand in the midst of trials and tribulations and praising Him and giving thanks for Him for these things instead of complaining. This is a defect of the will and it results in the Christian not being filled by the Holy Spirit. In the Christian being ineffective. So a defect of the intellect results in no salvation or extreme baby step, ineffective Christianity. I would lean more towards saying it results in not even being saved. A defect of the will results in not being filled with the Spirit and ineffectiveness in terms of the work of God. Now, there's no indication that at Ephesus that there was a falling short in either of these two areas. Based on what Jesus Christ had already said to them in His commendation, there didn't seem to be a falling short in terms of the intellect or of the will. But there's another type of spiritual poverty, and that's a defect of the heart. Or as we could say, a loss of ardor. I love that old English word, ardor. It's a good way of saying passion. Rolling up passion, zeal, fervency all into one. That's what that word there means, ardor. Now Jesus, when He was giving His Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24, spoke of the last days and the spiritual state of people that were spiritual. And He said that because in those days iniquity will abound, the love of many will wax cold. I think that's a picture of what's happened at Ephesus. They had encountered the false teachings. They had stood up against it. They had stood up against the Nicolaitans, as we'll read later. Iniquity abounded and their love grew cold. The ardor, the passion, the zeal that they had when the church was first born and came to Christ and was a missionary base there in Asia for the entire area had grown cold. The doctrine was there. The labor was there. But the zeal and the passion, the proper motive, was gone. What is Ephesus commended for having? They're commended for having works, labor, and patience. 
But let's compare this in light of Christ's indictment with what Paul said to the church at Thessalonica. Jeremy, would you read 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 3 and listen to what the Thessalonians are commended for having. Ephesus is commended for having works, labor, and patience. But what does it say about Thessalonica? 1 Thessalonians 1 3. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. So Ephesus had works, labor, and patience. But Thessalonica had works of faith. In other words, works, not for work's sake, but motivated by faith and belief in the promises of God. Ephesus had labor, but Thessalonica had labor of love. It wasn't labor performed just out of duty. It was performed out of genuine love for the brethren. Ephesus had patience, but the Thessalonians had patience of hope. It was patience that wasn't motivated just by sitting around and nothing happening. It was motivated by the coming of Jesus Christ, which they expected at any time. There were motives behind the work. Ephesus had lost these motives. Oh, they were continuing to labor. They, were continu- they, they had patience. Uh, they, were, they, were, they were discerning between truth and evil and, and truth and lies and good and evil, but the motive had, had disappeared. Many of us that share the gospel and, and, and make evangelism a part of our lifestyle, we know what that is. You know, we labor or we encounter people on the streets. I've allowed my love to grow cold so many times on these college campuses here in America because I just get sick and tired of all the false teachings. I get sick and, sick and tired of all the accusations and all the foolishness out there that that love for the gospel, that love to see lost souls come to Christ grows cold. That was the problem at Ephesus. It becomes intellectual or it becomes simply a matter of duty or dispensation and not a matter of love and zeal. We should strive for work of faith, not just work. We should strive for labor of love, not just labor. Patience of hope, not just patience. When a church loses its first love or its zeal or its ardor and begins to develop that defect of the heart, it's at what I would call a dangerous crossroads that can lead to to apostasy. Let's consider the stages in a church's life that lead to apostasy. And this is just something that seems to be the case as you read these messages and consider... uh, the book of Acts and the teachings to the church. A church is born, people come to Christ, and it's, it's characterized by ardor, zeal, passion, fervency for the gospel. And then we began to see that this passion cools. There's a cooling of spiritual love and zeal. What happens when that begins to cool? Well, the next inevitable step is a love of God is replaced with a love for the things of this world. See, friends, when our zeal and our passion begins to cool and we don't begin to take it seriously anymore, then we'll start replacing our love for God with a love for the things of this world. Now, Ephesus apparently was somewhere here between two and three. There was a cooling 
of that ardor, that zeal. It hadn't gotten to this place yet like it does at Pergamos. hadn't gotten there yet, but it was dangerously close. Well, what happens when we start loving things of the world more than we love God or the church goes that direction? Well, what happens is there's ultimately compromise and spiritual corruption. And then this, I'm, I'm, I'm sad to say, is followed by a complete departure from the faith. Departure from the faith and a loss of testimony in the world. These are the stages in a church. This is the down spiraling that occurs as we begin to lose our ardor for Jesus Christ and His Gospel. Ardor is followed by a cooling. That's where Ephesus was. And then we start seeing the things of this world grab our allegiance as a church body. Then there's compromise, spiritual corruption. I could name names here in this community in terms of pastors and churches, if I wanted to, that fit this profile. And then you have a complete departure of the faith. There's churches in this community that have departed from the faith. And their testimony is a testimony of Antichrist. It's not a testimony of Jesus Christ. Christ saw Ephesus at this crossroads. Right here, between 2 and 3. To the public, Ephesus was a successful church. But to Jesus Christ, they were at a dangerous crossroads. He saw their motive. Friends, are we at that crossroad? Are we like Martha in Luke chapter 10 who was encumbered with serving and working? So busy working for Christ that she had little time like Mary to just love Him or fellowship with Him? Christ Jesus is more concerned about what we do with Him than what we do for Him. You can go out here and preach on every college campus in this country. You can hit every festival that comes to town with a thousand gospel tracts each festival. But if you're not doing it with Jesus, it doesn't mean anything. Amen. Do we even pray when we go out to preach the gospel? Or do we just assume that we're, we're supposed to go out, we just need to do it everywhere and say, say it straight up every time? And we don't even take time to pray. Maybe the Lord doesn't want us out there that day. Or maybe He wants us to say certain things and not say other things. Are we doing it with Jesus or are we just doing it for Him? Some, or some folks came to Jesus in John chapter 6 and said, Lord, what, was, what must we do to work the works of God? Jesus didn't say, do this, do this, do this, do this. He said in John 6, 29, this is the work of God, that you believe on Him whom God hath sent. And then later in John chapter 13, Jesus told His disciples, I give you a new commandment. He'd already given them the commandment, this is the work of God that you believe on Him that God hath sent. And I'm also giving you a new commandment that you love one another. You know, as brethren in the church of Jesus Christ. So friends, if our work is not motivated by a belief in a, in a wholehearted uh, allegiance to Jesus Christ and His Gospel, and it's not motivated by our love for the brethren, then it's not with Jesus Christ. It might be for Him, but it's not with Him. And if it's not with Him then we are paddling against the current. We're up the creek without a paddle. Amen. Well, when a church is at this crossroads, my friends, like Ephesus, 
It's down spiraling toward apostasy. May not seem like a big deal on the outside, but it's the matters of a heart that lead toward departure from the faith. Matters of the heart. It's where it begins. That's why Jesus said that your lust is adultery in the sights of God. Your hate or sight of God, your anger or hatred for your brother is murder. God sees the heart. And the attitude of the heart eventually corrupts the flesh. People think, well, I'm not going to have sex outside of marriage, but you sit at home on your computer and you look at pornography and you're lusting in your heart. Rest assured, if you don't get a handle on that and repent, turn from that, you're going to be out here fornicating, committing adultery at some point. There's only one remedy for this place of danger on that downward spiral toward apostasy, and it's pretty simple. In fact, it's alliterated... Right here. What do we do if we find ourselves in that position? We're, we're to remember. We're to repent. And we're to repeat. If we as a church body or as a Christian are all at this dangerous crossroads where our zeal and passion has been cooled for whatever reason, what must we do? Jesus in verse 5 says this, after saying you've left your first love, remember therefore from when, whence you are fallen and repent and do the first works or repeat what you've done before. Or, I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place except thou repent. Sim simple friends, we need to remember where we came from. Remember that Jesus Christ saved us. We need to repent of our loss of zeal and ardor. And we need to repeat the passion, the zeal, the love, and the works we did when we first came to Christ. Do you remember that excitement you had when Jesus Christ saved you? If you claim to be a Christian, you never had that. You're not saved, period. If you claim to be a Christian and you never repent, repented or you never wept or felt sorry over your sins, you're not saved. You just prayed some prayer and did a little religious exercise that means nothing in the eyes of God. But if you know Jesus Christ, you remember that zeal and that passion you had when you first came to Him. We need to repent of losing that and return and repeat those first works. It's simple. You see, the remedies for our problems, when they come from God and when they come from His Word, they're not complex like all this psychobabble out there. They're simple. You know, a lot of the problems that young Christians or brethren are struggling with can be answered with a, simple expect, ex, uh, with a simple exhortation. Get over it. Get over it. That's some of the best advice that can be given from one brother to another in half the things we struggle with as Christians. But in another way, remember, man, remember where you came from. If you're doubting, if you're struggling, remember what Jesus did for you. Remember what He's done in the lives of people here in the churches or in the people you fellowship with. Repent for the matters of your heart that have caused you to cool or to turn from that and repeat, go back to where you started. That's simple, my friends. And that's what the church at Ephesus was told to do. Or the light of their testimony would be removed. I love traveling around America. I've been on all these back roads and I love looking at old church buildings and if they happen to be open, I like going in there. 
at, up near the church where my family and I were members of up in Creedmoor, uh, uh, North Carolina, the church that sent us out formerly on the mission field. I was always intrigued. There's an old cemetery just kind of back there in the woods with a little fence around it. And there's a really old set of stairs, just old foundation concrete stairs just sitting in the middle of the woods. And there's no other indication of any other type of building around there. Well, as it turns out, those were the old stairs to the front of a primitive Baptist church that was there years ago. No longer there. No testimony. What happened? I like to think about that. Like, what happened? What did God do there at one time? Why was that church born? And why now is it just a set of stairs? Did the church lose its first love? Did it lose its testimony in the world and therefore there's no remnants whatsoever? It's interesting to think about these old church buildings here in America. What happened there? What did God do? Did they start out on fire and then become like Ephesus and before it was over it was Laodicea so God just took the testimony out and now it's just an old rotting building? I don't know. I don't know. It's interesting to think about though. But, John, uh, Jesus says here that I will remove your candlestick. Now what does that mean? It's not talking about eternal salvation here. It's not talking about eternal salvation or eternal damnation. What is a candlestick? What is the lampstand? It's a light in the dark world. It's a testimony in the world. This is talking about a loss of testimony. In fact, I would say it's a reference to the sin unto death for a church. There is a sin unto death for the believer. It's not eternal damnation. It's a loss of testimony in the world. You know, if your life, if you're a genuine born-again follower of Jesus Christ and you're living out of the will of God and Almighty God has chastised you like the Bible says will happen to children of God and you're refusing to listen like a stubborn, spoiled brat child and it comes to the point where your life is nothing but a reproach on Jesus Christ in this world, what will God do? He'll take you out of this world. Just like a father will take your rear end out of, out of your car, take you off the streets and ground you and stick you at home if you're not going to obey and listen. That's what God does. Sin unto death. A grounding. Loss of testimony in the world. The Bible speaks of this. 1 John 5.16 Let's read this real quick. These are very hard verses to understand, but it says, If any man see his brother, in other words, his Christian brother, sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is, however, a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. 1 Corinthians 11. Paul is warning the believers about coming together and making a mockery out of the Lord's Supper. And he says in verses 30 and 32 that because of their actions, many are weak and sickly among you and many are asleep or they have died. They have, they're dead. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, in other words, weak, sickly, or some of you even dead, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. This isn't talking about Christians that lose their salvation. This is talking about the sin unto death. Sometimes God judges us, chastens us, even to the point of our death. Loss of testimony in this world so that we will not be condemned with the world. And I would maintain here that the imagery of removing the candlestick indicates that there is a sin unto death for a church body. 
And that sin unto death is a loss of testimony. For the believer, it's a loss of his testimony here on earth. For the church, it's a loss of their testimony. Acts chapter 5, maybe that's what we're seeing with Ananias and Sapphira. Part members of that, that church body, or that church there in Jerusalem. Loss of testimony. That's a warning. Do we want God to remove our testimony? There's plenty of churches in this community where the testimony's been removed. Many of them don't even exist anymore. Is there an element of a sin unto death for the entire church of Jesus Christ in the rapture? That's an interesting thing to think about. The rapture of the church during that time of spiritual apostasy known as Laodicea is the blessed hope of the believer. It's what we should be looking for and waiting for. But is there a sense in which that's the sin unto death for the church and therefore the end of the church age? Has the church become so uh, uh, lukewarm that God's finished with it, He takes it on home and then He turns back to His Jewish witnesses that He seals and uses them to take the gospel to the end of the earth during the days of the tribulation. It's something to think about because when the church age is done, Christ turns again to the Jews. And they're the ones that preach the gospel of the kingdom to the end of the earth. Then the end comes. Not the church. So people that are out there saying, man, we've got to go out and preach the gospel to all nations. If we hurry up and we reach everybody, then Jesus is going to come back. It's out of order. Dispensationally out of order. God's witnesses, those 144,000 Jews that are sealed by the Father, just like the Christians are sealed by the Holy Ghost, during that tribulation, they're going to preach that gospel to the ends of the earth. And that's why John sees, after those witnesses are sealed, an innumerable multitude from all nations and tribes and tongues standing before the throne. People that were martyred for their faith during the reign of Antichrist. But it's worth thinking about. Is, is, is there an element of a loss of testimony even in the rapture, which is such a glorious thing? A paradox, kind of like when, when God flooded the earth with, in the days of Noah, not a local flood, but a universal flood that covered the highest mountains. That was judgment. But paradoxically speaking, when you travel around certain parts of the world like Tibet or Utah or the Sierra Nevada in California that show evidence of that flood, how the fountains of the deep opened up and upturned those mountains, there's an amazing austerity, amazing beauty in that. So even in God's judgment, there's beauty. So maybe even in that blessed hope of the believer, there's an element of the loss of testimony. And that aspect of it ought to make us sad. Okay, I'm almost finished here. Um, I really want to get through this. So we've got a commendation for doctrine and diligence. We've got an indictment for a loss of passion and zeal. But, Jesus is not finished. He's not finished. Tells them if they don't remember, repent and repeat, He's going to remove their testimony. But verse 6, But, you have something else worthy of commendation. This thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So you have a commendation for doctrine and diligence, indictment, for a loss of devotion, and another commendation for hating the enemies of truth. Yes, Jesus did commend them for hating the enemies of truth in verse 6. What's that word Nicol Nicolaitan mean? Well, it comes from two Greek words, nikao, which is a verb that means to conquer. And then the, the verb, I mean, the, the noun laos or, or, or laos, which means people. 
So the word Nicolaitan means to conquer the people. What is this a reference to? It's a reference to an attitude that began to creep up in the apostolic church that saw a distinction between the clergy or the leadership and the laity or the people. The Nicolaitans were the forerunners of this clerical hierarchy that we would see in the Catholic Church. Popes and cardinals and prelates and deacons and all these offices that are not in the New Testament church ruling and reigning over the people. If you read the third epistle of John that was written around the same time as Revelation, there was a pastor in that church where Gaius was a faithful member who for all practical purposes was Nicolaitan in his attitude. His name was Diotrephes. Verse 9 and 10 and 3 John, John says, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember the deeds which he does, pratting against us with malicious words and not content therewith. Neither doth he himself receive the brethren and forbiddeth them that would and casteth them out of the church. In other words, this Diotrephes lorded over God's heritage as Peter told pastors they were not to do. They were to shepherd the flock. They were to be examples to the flock, not to lord over God's heritage. And Nicolaitans lord over God's people just like priests do in religions. That's why people go and give the priest in Kathmandu money at the Hindu temples and, and shower the Buddhist monks with gifts and money. These Buddhists that are supposed to be taking vows of poverty are driving around these huge SUVs that cost over $100,000 in that part of the world. What a joke. The Dalai Lama, who's supposed to be this image of, of, uh, of, of poverty and this image of humility and unattachment to the world, lives in a big mansion and fled Tibet and lives in wealth, traveling the world and speaking while his own people are suffering at the hand of the Chinese. Well, if he's a god, like they say, is why don't he go back and deliver the Tibetans from the Chinese people? Because he's not. He's a, he's a, he's a, he's a charlatan. He's a fraud. Okay? But that Nicolaitan idea, that, that religious concept of the priestly class ruling over the laity, Jesus Christ said He hates that. And the church at Ephesus hated it too. You know, in Roman Catholicism, we can see this Nicolaitanism even in the way they take communion. Only the priests are allowed to have the wine or, the, or, or take the aspect of the Lord's Supper that refers to the blood of Jesus. Only they are allowed to do it. The laity just gets the wafer. That wafer God they parade down the aisle. But that's Nicolaitanism. That's religion. In other words, you've got the spiritual class. They're the ones who are the source of truth. And the average Joe, he can't interpret the Scriptures properly. He has to come to God through this clergy. Jesus Christ hates that. The church of Jesus Christ is the priesthood of every believer. Scripture is for the common man. The authority to preach the Gospel is given to every creature. I mean every, I mean every Christian. And we're to hold one another accountable so that our leadership doesn't rule over the body. It leads by example and by love. Now we would be very critical of the Roman Catholic Church and the hierarchy and the, and the Nicolaitanism there, but you see that in a lot of Baptist churches today. These Baptist churches, they may have their doctrine straight up. They may deserve the same type of commendation that Ephesus initially gets, but the pastor runs things like a little pope little fiefdoms where there's no accountability. It's about their kingdom 
and look what I've done, and if you question me or you cross me, you're out of here. That's everywhere. That runs rampant in Baptist churches and it's disgusting and Christ hates it. Oh yes, there's pastoral leadership in the church, but it's not to be a division between the clergy and the laity. Paul said when you have a matter of dispute in the church, why are you taking these matters before the unsaved at law? Don't you know that we as Christians will judge angels? And don't you know that even the least esteemed in your church body have the authority and are worthy to judge these matters? So if Paul encouraged the church to use the least esteemed or the not-so-smart people or the the people at the so-called bottom in the church to judge these matters, how dare we divide between the clergy and the laity and think that a special, special spiritual class of people is needed for us to properly understand God and His revelation? Ephesus hated this. Christ hates this. The verb used here in the original language for hate literally means to detest to despise. I would say it's even a more harsh word than hate. I know this isn't popular with a lot of people and this might invoke some negative comments on my podcast when I post this sermon later. But yes, God does not only hate sin. God Almighty hates the workers of iniquity. Psalm 5.5 Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. My friends, sin has no character apart from the one who commits sin. That's why God says in Psalm 7:11, "Thou art angry." Or, uh, uh, it speaks of God. You're angry with the wicked every day. But there is a worldly hatred which is rooted in emotion, and there is what the scriptures call a perfect hatred, or a godly hated, hatred that's rooted in truth. Worldly hatred is based on emotion. That's wicked. God doesn't hate that way. Neither should we. But godly hatred or perfect hatred is rooted in truth. And true love for God involves a fervent hatred of that which counterfeits and perverts God's truth. Ephesus had this hatred. This hatred for that wicked Nicolaitanism. I know it's running long. I just, I really want to finish this and I'm close. Um, Psalm 139, 21 and 22, and I'll just read these real quick so we don't... Um, take up too much time here. David describes this godly hatred. And it really flies in the face of modern day churchianity. Psalm 139, 21 and 22. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate Thee? And am I not grieved with those that rise up against Thee? I hate them with perfect hatred. Not emotional hatred, but hatred as a result of the truth. I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. Proverbs 8.13 tells us the fear of the Lord, not only does Proverbs say it's the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge, but the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogancy and the froward mouth and the evil way do I hate. Righteous man hates evil. Romans 12.9, let your love be without dissimulation. Dissimulation means concealing what you know to be true. In other words, hiding God's truth for fear of offending someone. Abhor, in other words, detest, despise, hate that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. So Paul takes biblical Christian church love and pairs it with a hatred for that which is evil. So I would say those that claim to know the love of Christ in the New Testament and think it means turning a... 
blind eye to injustice and make an excuse for sin have no clue what New Testament love is. True love for God involves a fervent hatred of that which counterfeits and perverts God's truth. Not an emotional hate. Not a reactionary hate but a hatred based upon God's truth and a love for His Word. If we love God and love His Word, if we know that God creates life, we ought to hate the murder of the unborn children in this country with a godly hatred. We ought to hate with a godly hatred the abortion doctor that cuts those babies into little pieces. And I know that people are going to burn a gasket out when they hear that. A godly hatred. Oh, we should love the world as the church, my friends, in the sense of extending to it the gospel of salvation. But like David and Paul, we should hate those that are the enemies of God. Not an emotional hatred. Please understand, not a worldly hatred. Much of the hatred we have a lot of times is worldly, and we need to repent of that. But a hatred that mirrors God, and that is aligned to Him over and above the world. Listen, the godly hatred at Ephesus was a plus. They were at this dangerous crossroads. And and Jesus said, remember, repent, and repeat. And also, you have something going for you. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. This was a plus at the crossroads of diminished ardor. These Ephesians had a head start toward righting what had been made wrong. They had a head start toward returning to their first love because they had a hatred for those that would bastardize the priesthood of the believer. There was hope for Ephesus. There was hope for them. Sadly, what Ephesus hated, we'll see later, Pergamos, the church at Pergamos, completely embraced. Verse 7, very simple here. And again, I'm sorry, I just really want to finish this so I'm not left in the middle leaving for a couple weeks. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. This right here is proof that the message was intended not only for the church at Ephesus, but for an audience beyond the local assembly of God's day. Ephesus is a type of a church that exists at all times. In fact, it may be us. Let's search our hearts. It's a type. Jesus gives a personal message to the individual believer. He that has an ear, if your heart is open and you have an ear, listen to what the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is saying to the churches. Listen. To him that overcomes. There's an invocation. Listen. And then there's a promise. To him that overcomes. Are these overcomers special Christians? Are they super spiritual Christians? Or are overcomers what genuine believers naturally are to be. What does 1 John 5, 5 tells? Who is he that overcomes? He that believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. If you're a genuine believer, you're an overcomer. Period. It's not a special class of Christian that some attain and others don't. Overcomers are genuine believers. He that overcomes will I give to eat of the tree of life. Now just like Christ's introduction of Himself and these messages draws attention to one aspect of the revelation of Him in chapter 1 for that particular church. So does the promise at the end of each of these messages. It has special bearing on the church being addressed or the type of church being addressed. 
Every promise is to every true believer, but the specific one mentioned here and the specific ones mentioned later to the others were meant to elicit a specific response. Jesus says, I'll give those that overcome to eat of the tree of life. What is a tree of life? It was in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were kicked out of the garden because that image of God in which they were created had been tainted by sin. And they were kicked out of the garden so they would not eat of the tree of life and thereby live in that state forever. So the tree of life was lost in the Garden of Eden. And if you go on and read in Revelation 22 at the end of the Bible, that tree of life appears again. It's in the midst of the paradise of God. It's right there in that street. It's a symbol of restoration. What was lost in Eden is regained and restored in the new Jerusalem because of what Jesus Christ has done. So by Jesus, by promising to those that overcome to eat of the tree of life, it's a reminder to, to motivate us unto a rekindling or a restoring of lost love, lost ardor, and lost zeal. How can, be, how can we be reminded to rekindle or to restore anything that was lost as symbolizing that tree of life? Well, Paul makes it very simple. Particularly when it comes to the commission to preach the gospel. We've got to be honest. We don't always have this great love or desire to go out there and preach the gospel. But we ought to make that a part of our life. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 16 and 17, For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. In other words, if I do it with a proper motive, I have a reward. But if against my will a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. So Paul recognizes that there were times when he labored not willingly, but in those moments he recognized it. Look, Paul recognized, if not, in other words, when I don't do it with my will, he recognized it, then he recalled that a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. When we lose that zeal, how can we be reminded to rekindle? We need to recognize that we've lost it. And then we need to recall that Christ has commissioned us. So Paul, Paul admits here that if I do it willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I still have the duty bestowed upon me. And if I'll remember that and recognize where I'm at, I'll, I'll be restored to that, uh, that, that uh, place of doing it uh, with a proper motive and a proper spirit. So Ephesus, it was a church in John's day. In fact, it was his own church in latter years. That's where he primarily spent his time. It's a type of a backslidden church that is at a dangerous crossroads on the downward spiral toward apostasy. And those churches have existed at all times uh, in the age of the church. They exist today. And then finally, and this will be brief, it really is a remarkable description of the apostolic church from Pentecost to approximately A.D. 100, the end of John's life. If you want to look at the overall picture of Christianity in the first century of the church, it began with zeal and passion. It had labor. It had patience. It had all these things. But toward the end of the first century in John's day, seeds of apostasy started to creep up. 
seeds of Nicolaitanism started to creep up. You just got to read 2 and 3 John to understand the spiritual fervor in those days or the spiritual state in those days. These things were beginning to creep up because the church that had the zeal to carry the gospel throughout all of Asia and to do what Acts described as turning the world upside down for Jesus Christ had started to cool off. Gnosticism was giving rise to Nicolaitanism. Seeds of apostasy would later blossom and take over the entire uh, realm of Christendom. There began to be a loss of fervor in missions and evangelism. That was the church in the first century. And if you know church history, after about A.D. 100, God did something to wake them up. You guys know what it is? over the next couple centuries in church history? What did God do to the church to keep it from apostatizing when it lost its fervor? Persecution. Those persecutions of the Roman emperors all the way up to the days of Constantine. And guess what? The next church we read about is Smyrna. Smyrna is the persecuted church. And so you began to see this history of the church age unfold. Local admonitory, prophetic, and personal. Friends, these messages are personal. It's late. I'm not going to get into it, but I, I can stand here and say with, to you with all truthfulness that God used this message to Ephesus at a crossroads in my life where I began, I began in ministry with a zeal and a passion and a fervency when it came to sharing the gospel, even just here on the streets in America. Time went by. The ministry got more busy. I was encumbered with more logistics and administrative duties. We had begun to travel overseas. And that fervency and zeal that I had here in America, in my own country, I began, it began to cool. It began to be lost. And I was seeking, what should I do, Lord? And we began to plan this trip to Alaska. We had a team put together, bicycle ride back in 2009, and then... Sherry's wife, I mean, Dylan's wife had some health problems and they had to bow out. And the young lady that had commi committed to go with us, she backed out. Jamie's mom came down with cancer, so Jamie couldn't leave and I was kind of left there standing. Our RV was damaged and couldn't, wasn't roadworthy anymore. And for all practical purposes, I should have just canceled the thing and stayed home. But I was asking God, what do you want me to do? And He took me right to this passage. And He said, you've left your first love. Therefore, remember where you came. Repent and do the first works. Now, what were the first works when I surrendered to the ministry and left seminary? I rode a bicycle across America. It's very clear to me. And then God used that to help rekindle that love for the gospel. And He used this passage of Scripture right here. And so these messages are to us personally, and they will speak to us directly if we'll seek the Lord. They will. And guess what came out of that trip? Well, I met this obscure young man named Ricky Springer who was down at the southern tip of South America last week, up open air preaching on the boardwalk in Ushuaia. Something I didn't even get to do when I was down there. What if I'd have never run into him? What if I hadn't remembered? What if I hadn't just gone on on that trip anyway, even though it meant me being away from my family? I would have missed some real blessings. And God used that to help rekindle that passion. I probably wouldn't be out here on these college campuses because I would have developed this attitude of just despising my country. I'll go preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. When I come down back here, I'm not going to open my mouth. I'm not going to waste time. It's a dangerous place to be. So God did use this passage of Scripture in my life personally 
And I know He can do that for you. And I encourage you as we study these messages to the seven churches that you'll ask God, are you telling me something specifically? Uh, not just to our church body, or not just about churches, types of churches at all times, or not just about periods in church history, but are you speaking to me personally? Have we lost that first love? And that could take a variety of forms. And let's seek God on that. And let's restore, let's remember, let's repent, and let's repeat the first works so that God forbid we don't end up where half of these churches in America do. Just an empty set of stairs sitting in a patch of woods. Nobody knows where they're from or why they're there. All right, man, I've gone long. I'm really sorry, but we're at a good stopping point. And uh, maybe use these next couple of weeks just to meditate upon these messages to the seven churches. And I'll look forward to being back with you after this trip and continuing this teaching. I hope you're blessed by it. I am recording these messages. You can hear them online. I'm not a Bible scholar. I don't know everything. I'm just trying my best, and I hope the Lord is using it. So let me just pray real quick for the food. Again, I'm real sorry about the time. And, but thank God we don't uh, have to get to the buffet line at the Golden Corral like most Christians do. <laughs> Our food's right here, so we'll probably eat before they do, even though they got out at 12. All right, let's pray. Father, thank You for this day. We thank You for Your Word. Lord, we ask that You would help us to constantly examine ourselves. Lord, have we, we may have works and we have, may have faith and patience in those things, but have we lost that zeal, that ardor, that first love? And if so, Lord, uh, I pray that You would help us to uh, recognize these things, Lord, to, to repent and to repeat the first works. Lord, may we always be those that hate uh, that w with a godly hatred, that which is wicked, and those that are enemies of God. May we love the wor world in such a way that we'll preach salvation, but may we hate unrighteousness in such a way that we'll die for Jesus Christ, not fighting with sword or gun, but dying with the word of our testimony on our lips. Looking forward to that day when He will return as clearly revealed to us here in these Scriptures. So Lord, may we not be a backsliding church, but may we be a fervent church as the New Testament uh, believers were in the book of Acts. And may we return to that. Help us uh, this week to be a witness with zeal for you. May this food give us strength and nutrients, Lord. And uh, just thank you for the freedom to worship you with these brethren, with fellowship and in the love of Jesus Christ. Amen.